Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 152 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Dr. Meg Arrell. Meg is a psychologist, a scientist, and the author of the book Tiny Traumas. In the next hour, you're going to learn what tiny traumas are and how they're shaping your life in this very moment, the key sources of tiny traumas and how to uncover those which are impacting you, what we can do to begin to understand the small events in our life and why they shape us, how we can work to embrace those events to build up a form of psychological immunity, and so much more. This conversation, this topic is a really, really interesting one. It's one of those very rare episodes where what we're going to discuss for the next hour will definitely impact you, right? We're all carrying around these things, which to put it as Meg puts it on the front cover of her book, when you don't know what's wrong, but nothing feels quite right, right? We've all had those moments where life is okay. We look out and there's nothing particularly bad going on and yet we just don't feel okay. And in this conversation, we're finally going to get some of these psychology, some of the science behind what's going on there and more importantly, what you can do about it. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But just before that, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this right now. So many more great conversations just like this one are coming your way this year and you don't want to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 152 of Life and Lessons with Dr. Meg Arrell. Dr. Meg Arrell, thank you for being here. Sean, it's just so lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So we're here today to talk about something called tiny traumas. But before we do that, I want to set the ground and perhaps we can look more globally at what trauma is, because it's a word that's used a lot these days, but perhaps we can define exactly what trauma is. What is trauma? Sean, I'm just so glad you asked me that because it's really important to understand tiny trauma or what I call tiny T trauma when we can see it within the context of trauma overall. So we've done so well in the past few decades. We really have um, talked quite a lot about trauma, a lot about mental health. But generally, when we're talking about these things, when we talk about anything that's kind of new and a bit zeitgeist changing, we do focus on the worst of the worst. So that happens within practice, within research as well. So what is big T trauma, and that's capital T trauma, these are the things that we know from research and practice that have a profound effect on, on people's both mental and physical health. So examples of these would be a violent attack, losing uh, a parent when we're very, very young, living in a war zone. So these are big traumas. But actually, there are other things that happen to, to, to more people, and these are called major life events. So uh, sadly, we will all lose someone that we love. Many of us will go through a divorce. Many of us will have um, chronic health problems. There's so many other things that happen and they do affect us as well, especially when they're in quick succession. But there's also smaller trauma, so lowercase or tiny trauma. And these are the psychological and emotional cuts and scrapes that happen to us on more of a daily basis, certainly weekly and monthly. And these are the things that build up over time and they become a sort of emotional sludge or silt and they start to block us up basically. 
But the issue is, is that we don't really talk about these tiny teas. And that can create a sense of, well, you know what, it's not bad enough. So I don't have a right to express how I feel. And this is what I call um, reverse misery trump. So it's because people are so compassionate and they will say things like, well, you know what, someone else has it so much worse than me. Like, you know, I, I, I shouldn't complain and I shouldn't really express how I feel because actually it's not that bad. And in some ways, having a very sort of stoic type mindset can be useful to a point, but actually only once we've processed our emotional experience and really come to terms with what we are feeling. But also all these different types of trauma and life events, they interact and they affect each other. So we all have our own unique combination of trauma, life experience, and these daily psychological nicks, scrapes, and bruises. I just want to pick up on something you said there, because that's really interesting. I've had people on this podcast before, and I speak a lot about ideas such as so, such as stoicism, such as gratitude journaling, such as all of these ideas that are good and proven, and we can appreciate that they have their place. But I've definitely fallen victim to what you just described there, where because I'm of the mindset where I'm like, no, somebody has it worse than me, or because I'm of the mindset that things should be good because I write three things in a journal about what was good today. It's almost like I don't give myself permission to accept that I'm not bulletproof, right? Accept that things can, should, and do affect me. Do you find that in your practice that people almost think that because their trauma isn't enormous, because there's not a singular thing they can point to and say it was this that caused me trauma, it doesn't feel valid? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've hit the nail on the head. So the, one of the really major difficulties is that tiny T trauma is hard to pinpoint. If there is a major trauma or a significant life event, we, we, we know about it. It feels obvious to us. But when there's this combination of more subtle, nefarious things going on, we tend to feel quite confused. And so when I have clients that come to see me, one of the things I really noticed, and that was a real driver for the book, was that they would sit down and they'd say, oh, actually, I don't know why I'm here. Like, I, I don't really think that I deserve to be here because so many people have other things. But also, I don't know what's wrong. I do not know why I feel like this. But all I know is that I just don't feel okay. And I know I'm asking you to to guess how long a piece of string is here, right? But I want to ask this because the the subtitle of the book resonated with me so much, so much. What percentage of people do you think are walking around and holding in that feeling that actually things are generally okay, right? They're globally all right, but they just don't feel quite right. Because the second I read the first few pages of your book, I thought it must be almost everybody, surely. I do think most of us will experience this at some point in our lives. But say if you just take a snapshot right now today, it's highly likely that more people than not will be having that feeling of not okayness and they will be pushing it down. They won't be talking about it. And that in itself creates a range of psychological issues. It does. If we cannot express our inner experience and, you know, the things you're talking about are so, are so great. You know, I use a lot of gratitude practice within my clinic, but only after we've explored the tiny tea and some of the other things that might be going on for somebody, 
it's only after we have that level of awareness that we can move on to what is more of an action. It's interesting there, you you mentioned language almost, this idea that if we can't define what it is, it's very difficult to move past it. Do you think that part of the puzzle here is that we don't, in society as a whole, have the language for this? Because um, I, I was saying just before we started recording that on this podcast, so many times I've sat down and I've, I've said sentences such as, I've never had anxiety, but I've been anxious. I've, I've never had depression, but I felt a bit depressed. And it's almost like there is no gray area. There's no middle ground, right? You're either clinically depressed and really struggling, or you don't have the words to articulate how you feel. Is part of this problem language. So, yes, but there are two really important points there. So in terms of people feeling low mood or having some symptoms of depression, but perhaps not meeting the criteria for major depressive disorder, and again, feeling anxious, but if you went to your GP, probably not meeting the diagnostic list of what would be generalized anxiety disorder, this is what is the gray area of mental health. So on one side, you'd have quite serious and significant psychiatric and psychological disorders. And then on the other side, you'll be flourishing um, and actually you'll be functioning so well that you might not even be thinking about your mental health because you're living so much in the present moment. But these are the polar opposites. And there's this huge area in the middle, huge area, and we can slide from one side to the other. And it's only this tiny proportion of one end where at the moment you have the validation for what you're experiencing from, from our healthcare system. So that is quite a sort of macro level issue that we have at the moment that really can be challenged with having having these discussions. So absolutely, having some sort of language to discuss this gray area is incredibly important. And actually, the English language, even though we have more words than than most other languages, it's a very blunt tool. It really is. We have very few emotive or relational words that are complex, that truly, truly sort of represent our feelings. Um, and in the book, I take ju just I pick some words from from other languages that have a much more nuanced, but also more complex meaning. But even in the English language, when we talk about our feelings, we tend to say, actually, sure, t tell me your Top two words if you're saying how you feel. I would say, I think the words I use to describe how I'm feeling are probably quite dismissive, right? If somebody were to ask or if I were to just articulate, it'd be like, I'm fine and I'm okay. They're kind of, they don't really mean anything. Exactly. They do not represent emotions, actually. And even some words that do, like, I'm happy or I'm sad. These are very blunt ways of describing how we are feeling. And we don't really teach, you know, we don't really teach all, all the words that we could be using. So um, I tend to use in my practice what's called a feeling wheel, which has many other words to be able to try and describe these emotions. But it is a learning process. So if we've never been taught how to use this language, then how, how are we going to be able to do it? But also talking about our feelings is hard. It's not something that comes naturally. And so I've noticed recently there's been a little bit of frustration with some of the messages where it's just saying to, to us, oh, just, just talk, just talk. It's like, well, it's kind of like saying to someone, oh, just 
go fly that plane. So you, you may know what a plane looks like. You may have been on a plane um, and you may have even some idea about how one might be able to fly a plane. But it's a complex, it's a complex operation. And without careful instruction, you're not going to know how to do that. And you're definitely not going to know how to do that safely. What do you make of the moment in time we are in right now culturally? Because we've looked at language, we've looked at almost the self-talk that we give ourselves, but you don't need to click far on the internet to see a certain generation, a certain demographic more generally using words like snowflake, right? Suggesting that because in the same way that we said we look at ourselves and we say, well, other people have it worse, so I can't quite accept that I have it bad. Generations of people will say, well, two generations ago, we were in a war. One generation ago, this was happening. So your feelings aren't valid. What do you make of the kind of the way the society approaches this and how do we change that? So this is a little bit of a generational cultural war, isn't it? And 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 absolutely. So you probably saw my, my face just grimace a little bit with the word snowflake. Um, and and the thing is, first of all, to to have awareness that there are always cultural wars in terms of generational sort of difficulties, and it's because we are at very different phases. So we go through quite a few different psychosocial phases in life, and different things are important to us at the time. There are also some cognitive things going on then. So we tend to remember the past with rose colored spectacles, actually. So even if very difficult things happened, we, we do remember um, the, the things that sort of got us through it in that way. So someone who's a bit older, maybe looking at someone who, who's a bit younger and thinking, and, and actually that would be their, their, their sort of reaction thinking oh my gosh you, you really don't have it as bad as I did so just you know pull, pull your socks up but what it takes what we know it takes to be able to sort of overcome this kind of conflict is to communicate is to get to know each other a little bit more and that is very difficult online it's very difficult online and um, it is it, it's there's some really interesting research actually. That because I've been fascinated with how quickly things can erupt in the digital space. And two thirds of people um, in a survey admitted to trolling and being very negative to others. And I thought that was a huge proportion. So I did a little bit more digging around that. And the things that made it more likely was your current mood state, but also whether other people were kind of jumping in. So it, it does kind of tend to, to snowball in that way. But if the question is, what do I think of it? I think that it is a type of tiny T trauma. So that would be a macro level tiny T trauma that is created by our social cultural environment that can affect individuals. And again, it's something that we need to be aware of. That awareness is so, so key to be able to to overcome the difficulties that create. Without going too abstract and meta here, um, could it be the case that we have an entire generation of people who weren't yet aware of you know, the research, the new findings with these tiny T traumas, who therefore didn't necessarily deal with their own tiny T traumas, who are then, to, to use the stat you just said, picking arguments online and therefore almost passing on other tiny T traumas, right? There must be some tiny T's in receiving uh, messages online from strangers saying that your feelings aren't valid, right? It's almost this conveyor belt until we deal with it. 
we pass it on through generation because nobody's dealt with their trauma. So they're just going to throw it forward almost. Absolutely. And that is the key point about tiny T trauma is that if we are not aware of it, we miss the opportunity to develop coping mechanisms and develop what I call a strong psychological immune system. And we all do need to do that. So perhaps people that didn't have the opportunity, some of the, some of the um, mechanisms they've developed to be able to cope with the difficulties of life maybe aren't as sort of progressive as things that I would perhaps suggest for people to do now. So they may be dismissing other people. They may be quite negative to other people. And it is a way for them to cope with what they're going through. And that's always the case, isn't it? If someone is being quite negative or or even quite aggressive online, it is saying something about them rather than the receiver. But totally appreciate that's very, very, very hard to accept when you're at the other end of it. Just as a quick aside, do you know of any research that backs up that idea? Because I've heard quite a lot of, uh, from from guests, from people I watch online, that almost this idea that, what is it, Paul Moore, somebody I spoke to a few weeks ago, he put it in quite a blunt way. He said something like, losers will always let you, sorry, losers will always let you know you're winning. But I think what he's getting at there is the idea that if you're receiving this unsolicited hate or nasty message online, it's probably more to do with how the sender is feeling than a reflection of you as the receiver. Um, is there any research that backs up the idea that when we're in certain mental states, we're more likely to project badness out into the world, so to speak? There is, and it's in my book. So <laughs> there is a, a section on trolling and the, the research is in there. Because what we kind of as psychologists used to think was that there was certain personality characteristics that would make one more likely to troll other people. And that only accounts for a very small proportion. The newer research, which is a, li- a little bit frightening, is that any of us could could troll other people if your emotional state was as such and if your circumstances and context were as such, which means that we really do need to do more psychoeducation around this matter because that makes sense why it's so prevalent, because it's so prevalent, isn't it? You know, it just happens constantly. And, you know, the the numbers of people that are engaged in this behavior, behavior that would be very unlikely to do face to face, does feel quite shocking. But when you dig into it and find those reasons why, also what happens online is a disinhibition effect, which is very similar to perhaps having one too many drinks on a night out and getting into a bit of a fight. So there's some really interesting research that shows a very similar sort of effect where you do lose, in a way, your moral compass online does appear to be happening too. So now that we've laid the ground, we understand what tiny T's are. Those listening are probably uh, searching their brains, trying to work out what areas of their life might currently be giving them these tiny T's, right? And we're going to get on to how to deal with them later on in the conversation. But perhaps we can start by looking at some of the sources, some of the common sources of tiny T's, and you can run us through some examples. So let's begin with childhood. Yeah, so the point I really want to make here and the message I really want to get across is we're not talking about childhood abuse. That would be a big T, <clears throat> a major trauma, excuse me. What we're talking about is perhaps growing up in a family and developing an attachment that isn't as secure as we'd want. 
or just feeling like we we don't fit in and we don't really know why and we find that a lot just because your parents have a certain type of personality it doesn't necessarily mean that you always will have that personality too so I've worked with quite a few clients where they had quite outgoing parents and they were just a little bit more um, introverted but found that very very difficult because there is this mismatch and what we call it is misattunement in terms of those caregiver relationships and that can leave this emotional and psychological sort of indentation that won't always turn into a presentation that I see but it's part of the constellation. Also I see quite a lot um, in my practice um, particularly particularly with women who had um, a mother who had narcissistic tendencies and again this isn't something that would necessarily come up as big T trauma but it's certainly certainly tiny t and that can go on to um, a propensity to develop people pleasing um, tendencies but also high function anxiety and things like that so of course our early life is incredibly important but again the clients I see will say things like you know my, my parents didn't didn't you know abuse me it, it was it was fine you know I, I was I was happy but then we dig a little bit deeper and there's, you know, some elements of tiny tea. But also when we're kids, you know, school can be tough. And even if you have a very loving home and you have a secure attachment with your caregivers, there's lots of low-grade bullying that happens at school that can really affect us, especially teenagers at that point in your brain development. So even if it wasn't, you know, a violent attack, which we would term as big T, these tiny T's, because constant. So going to school every day, having frenemies oftentimes, and not really knowing how to tackle that, because if you would go to a teacher, a headmaster, a mistress, it, it wouldn't be termed as bullying, but you know that it's making you feel really bad random memory whilst reading the book so in the section about childhood tiny teas you invite the reader to i believe correct me if i'm wrong almost think back and pick out a certain memory from school or childhood or whatever it might be um and the reason it was so profound this memory is it is entirely insignificant it's a completely random memory i it happened probably 15 years ago i couldn't remember that it happened until you posed the question and yet I found it so interesting that it stuck with me, right? So the example, and this is completely bizarre for anyone listening, is I bought this new pair of earphones and I had them for about six months and they were just about to break in school. And then some random kid like took them and ripped them in half. And they were like a 20 pound pair of headphones. The, the thing probably lasted like eight seconds. I wouldn't say I was bullied in school, but it's interesting that that came up when you posed the question, right? So I'm wondering from our childhood, from these formative years, how many of these stories, these, these memories do you find when you're working with people in there somewhere, a slightly shaping our personality, slightly shaping the way we see the world, but until we're, we're challenged on them, we don't even recognize that they're there. Absolutely. It's what I call the dark matter of our psyche. So it's hidden and it's up to us to tweak, tweak it out. So thank you so much for sharing, sharing that story. And when, when you talk about it, what feelings so it's interesting. The reason I said it was both profound and insignificant is 
I think back to it and I'm like, actually, I'm, I'm, this is with like 10 years of perspective. So I'm probably second guessing and post rationalizing the way I now see it. However, I was like, oh, that was, that was a thing that I, I worked hard to make some money to buy. And I was proud of them. And then someone broke them and they felt that they could do that. And what does that say about my like social hierarchy position in school? And it was almost just this fountain of thought came from this tiny thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what is. And that's why it's so important to do a bit of the psychological work to uncover because it it's interesting that you said it was both profound and significant and i i would challenge i would challenge the cognition around that for even labeling it as insignificant the thing about tiny t's tiny t trauma the event could be objectively rather small but it doesn't matter it's the impact and how you describe the impact then, that I could feel it. I could feel it in my body. I could feel how difficult that experience So childhood is a long time ago for many people listening, but something that will almost definitely be producing daily acute tiny teas right now for most people listening is work. So let's look at some examples of how tiny teas come up in the workplace. So in the workplace, oftentimes tiny tea come up. And again, it's about this misalignment. If we're in work that we do not feel very aligned with, that can be very difficult. But also interactions with other people. Um, in my work, I do find um, the most frequent cases of microaggressions happen within the workplace. So that's kind of the backhanded compliment that feels like it sounds okay at the time. And then you walk away and you feel confused and you feel undermined. And again, if that happens once, it may or may not have an impact. But the tiny T's, the issue around tiny T's is that these tend to happen again, again and again. So say you do have a colleague at work or you do have a manager or just someone that is just on a low level undermining you, talking over you in, in meetings. And it's starting to make you feel like you have a lack in confidence, like you don't have a voice anymore. That would be a form of tiny And so in the present tense, because somebody can almost um, audit their life and probably find examples of that here and now, is it true to say that when not dealt with correctly, these tiny T's can actually develop to become far bigger T's because it almost seems cyclical, right? From what you just said, if somebody's undermining you, if somebody's making you feel slightly unwelcome and it almost goes under the radar, but that, that leads into how you see yourself in the workplace that leads into your beliefs about your ability. Is it true to say that, that left untouched tiny T's can get much bigger? Tiny T trauma will happen to us all throughout our life. So it's not to, to fear these, these situations. It's not to fear these events. But what it is, is to think about it in terms of what's interesting is maybe why something would affect one person, not another. And it is because within an environment of support, an environment of really good sort of emotional literacy, we can use those experiences to build up our psychological immune system, to build up our resilience. But most of us are not that fortunate to have that. And again, it's not something that's taught in schools, although it's beginning to be like we really do need to have a psychological education. So, yes, yes, indeed. Um, these little things can combine either just the tiny T's in combination 
or the tiny T's then layered with major life events and bigger trauma. So what we experience throughout our lives can really create the presentations I see in my clinic. And another reason to write the book was that I started to see themes, very common themes. And it did occur to me that they were all linked to this type of tiny T trauma. So high function anxiety is a big one. The curse of busyitis. So we're all busying ourselves so much. And generally that's because it's a bit of a distraction for feeling the feels that we have in relation to tiny Emotional eating is a very common presentation I see. Sleep difficulties, difficulties with moving from stages in life and feeling quite stuck. But a really common one, as well as the high function anxiety, is a type of low grade depression and just feeling numb. So maybe not feeling incredibly depressed, as, as we talked about at the beginning, but just not feeling much of anything. And so how do we uh, detect tiny T's in relationships? This is an interesting one because I've never been in a long term relationship romantically. And yet I look at people and from the outside in, it seems like there's either the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, right? And yet I imagine most days are slightly mundane, a slightly middle area -y. What kind of things are going on in relationships that are causing tiny T's for individuals? So again, we have talked about a lot more in recent years, things like gaslighting, which is definitely more significant. But when you feel undermined, when you feel like you're not being heard, when communication is a real issue, that can be a sign of disease. And there's lots of things. And I, I one thing I do love about um, language is that we are we are using new terms. So things like breadcrumbing is a frequent one, and not just in romantic relationships, but in friendship too. So giving someone just enough input that they're still on the hook, but definitely not enough to maintain any sort of you know healthy and adaptive relationship is one too. But if you just feel unsure, uncertain, but you don't feel like you can voice those concerns, I would encourage to do a little bit of work around if there are tiny teeth. So all of these tiny teeth so far have been firsthand, right? Something happens to you, you can point to it and say, okay, I understand why this has happened. But we were speaking just before we started recording about the idea of vicarious trauma. And the example you use in the book is linked to the news and the media and things that we see happening all around the world and how uh, we're almost exposed to trauma of one form or another. That then becomes, in a way, our own trauma because we have to process it. But then, of course, we can't do anything about it. So anybody who's listened to this podcast over the past year will know my whole thing about cutting out the news and all this stuff. But what does your research say about how we're affected by the news and the media and this vicarious trauma? So we, we do know that those um, that type of news consumption that becomes addictive-like not an addiction in terms of a, a chemical addiction, but in terms of when we check news, um, it does trigger the reward center of the brain because your brain wants certainty. We want to feel safe. Being able to have this, this device in our hand, which tells us we are not safe constantly, triggers our stress response. The stress response is there to help us survive. Um, and we talk about this so much of the time, like, 
you know, about the fight, flight or freeze response. But the difficulty in modern day is that our stress response hasn't really changed very much from early human. And because it's been so good for us, it's helped us survive, it's helped us adapt, it's helped us stay alive. But actually, in the modern day, there's so many, many triggers. So in the past few years, to have those um, news stories, those headlines, and we know that headlines are very much specifically um, created to, to trigger this type of fear response. And having that stress response triggered continually, it raises our cortisol level, it raises our adrenaline level. And that, again, that's adaptive for a short, sharp time, not when you're doing it every other minute, every other minute, every other minute. So I'll be fascinated to know what led you to, to find the solution to really kind of almost detox a bit from the news. So there were two things happening at once around this time last year. The first was I was getting into the work of Nir Eyal, um, who I've since had on the podcast and was able to share the story with him, which was cool. But he um, he looked lots into the kind of the methods that Silicon Valley uses to hook users into apps in one book and then how you can overcome distraction in another book. And so pairing those two together, the theme of his work was almost cut away unnecessary input into our mind that, that alters the way we see the world and plays of our attention, right? So that was in the back of my mind. And then all the while, February and March last year, of course, in the news cycle, we had Russia invading Ukraine. We had all sorts of changes. I think this time last year, there were still lots of COVID stats in the news, right? There was just lots of input coming into my life of stuff that was, it felt urgent, it felt immediate. But um, there's this Adam Curtis film from years ago, he calls it Odearism, this idea that when you turn on the news, you watch something and your response is, oh dear, but you can't really do much more than that, right? You're powerless. You, you see this bad stuff and then you're powerless to do anything about it. And so I had these two ideas in my head. And progressively, as I was checking the news, probably hourly, to be honest, sat here in the office, BBC, enter, right? Look, close it. BBC, enter, constant. I would feel more and more uneasy. I wouldn't even go as far to say anxious, but just this, this very low level uneasiness and I, I almost audited my life. I, is, it, is it finances? No. Is it work? Is it this? Is it that? And then I'm like, but there's a war going on in our continent and I feel connected to it very closely because I'm staring it in the face every hour. And no exaggeration, I cut it away. Maybe two days later, that feeling was completely gone. Exactly. Exactly. And that sense of unease or psychological dis-ease often comes from situations where we cannot control something. And so without a doubt, I would be encouraging clients and anyone that's listening to do exactly the same. Because what can you control in the situation? You control your news consumption. You control your information consumption. And two days, wow, that, that's absolutely, absolutely amazing. So fantastic. The last source of tiny teas that I want to speak about on the point there you make actually about what we can and what we can't control because at least to somebody like me who has no qualifications in this area it's a gray area right can we or can't we control the voices in our head because I suppose the way we speak to ourselves the way we kind of place ourselves in the world when we look outwards and we compare all of this stuff happens locally right it happens internally and yet it's almost like that voice in your head is in and of itself creating tiny teas is it not Absolutely. Absolutely. It can. It can. But it's really interesting to to tweak out and figure out where that voice comes from. And I do a lot of this work with my clients. 
and actually often ask them to to give it a shape, to give it a structure. What what does it look like? What color is it? To be able to externalize this voice. And what's really fascinating is I've had so many clients that say, well, it's just a gray blob. It's just this gray blob. And it's like, but okay, the gray blob. Like, we're not going to try and get rid of the gray blob necessarily. But let's think about, is there another voice? Is there another narrative that perhaps is a little bit more um, positive in the sense that it's, it's something that could debate with the gray blob? And this is such a powerful exercise because it generally works really, really well. Because there's so many sides of ourselves, our personality, our facets. And what that really does is it allows us to have a more nuanced exploration of the inner voice. And they can debate these things. So if there is a voice that is, is really replaying tiny T's in not a particularly adaptive or healthy way, we can have just another voice that can challenge that, as it were. Because basically, we do live in our heads, don't we? And so it's good to try and make it as pleasant a place as possible. But by exploring tiny teas, it's much more, much more possible to be able to be able to do that. So in a moment, I want to speak about your free A's, the, the methodology that we can work through to almost embrace these tiny teas and build up that immune system. But before I do that, uh, I want to understand, and you've touched on this already slightly, I want to understand how this stuff manifests, right? Because somebody listening may think, you know, I've, I've, I've listened to this list of potential areas where tiny teas come from, but they may not be fully bought in yet, right? They might be positioned in the place that I was before picking up your book, where like we spoke about at the beginning, I'm like, but people have it worse, but I'm not sure that this is profound enough. So talk me through some of the, the manifestation you see of this. How do people present when they're dealing with these tiny teas? And what should people be looking out for if they have their own to deal with? And it really is so much easier to spot it in our behaviors. So if we have developed what we call maladaptive behavioral patterns, so behavioral patterns that aren't suiting us, so that kind of low level but chronic anxiety that then leads us to perhaps not do the things in life that we really, really want to do or feeling like we're only just keeping our head above water. That's a symptom or just not engaging in emotional experience, just really thinking, I don't feel anything. I don't have the range of emotional experience. Again, that can be that can be a sign. But, you know, it's when we are not really surviving. It's when we're just surviving. That's a sure sign that there is something there that could be explored and worked with. Because I really do want to give hope to everybody that this is the starting point and it's absolutely possible to, you know, be aware, to accept and to action some really, really good strategies to have the best possible mental health you can. Also, though, because as I said at the beginning, there are many life events that all of us will experience. We will all lose someone. Um, and if we do some of this work, when those sorts of things happen, we will just be in a much better place to be able to cope with it. It'll still be painful, of course it will, but we'll have those coping strategies to, to manage our complex 
And so let's talk about those three steps one by one so that people can can work through and and build those managing strategies. So what is awareness all about? So first and foremost, and quite simply, awareness is being aware of, of tiny tea, being aware that tiny tea work in conjunction with other tiny tea. And it is this build up over time, this accumulation of these little knocks and scrapes we have emotionally and psychologically over life. But then awareness of our own unique identity. So your example uh, from school was just so important to have that awareness that did affect you. And we will generally have have a few. And so really connecting the dots and putting these pieces of the puzzle together, because what that does is it helps us make sense of it. And then we can see there is a reason for how I feel. And I, I will absolutely reassure everyone that's listening there is always and so let's look at acceptance this is interesting to me because as i was reading these three steps and you stress in the book the importance of acceptance it felt almost analogous to reading an instructional manual in a sense right because i'm not sure if this is just a male urge of mine uh, but i go to ikea and i buy something right I, i'm aware it's there i buy it and then i get straight back and i want to action it straight away right so i pull all the pieces out and i'm just trying to fix this thing together uh, and more often than not my business partner will attest to this with all of the furniture i either have or haven't built in the office um you kind of step back and you look at it and it's not quite right so how does acceptance of our awareness? How does actually accepting that these things really are having an impact play into this? So one of the most common things I see in my practice, um, in addition to people not knowing why they feel the way they do, is they've jumped into action. So there may be some awareness, and actually there's quite a lot of awareness these days, um, but jump straight into action and trying just everything, like throwing everything, everything at it. But if there's not true acceptance of what we've been through, who we are, and how we experience the world, a lot of a lot of these techniques, they may help for a little bit of time, but we just come back to that that presentation, that theme, that tiny sort of stage where we're at, and nothing has really, really moved on. It is impossible to move on without acceptance. So it is I would say, Sean, I would absolutely say it's the hardest bit. It's the most psychologically and emotionally painful bit because accepting the world as it is and perhaps not the way that you would ideally like it to be, it is hard. But once you do, it allows you to move on and make changes to create the future that you really want. And from a practical perspective, what does acceptance actually look like, right? So I've, I've become aware of something that is impacting me um, and I'm aware that I need to accept it following the free age, right? But how do I know when I'm actually at that point where I truly have accepted something and I'm not almost just paying myself lip service so I can skip on to the next step? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So once we have that sense of acceptance, that, you know, those, that inner monologue, you know, the voice it starts to get a bit quieter and then when you do move on these things will be so much more manageable you become calmer really do it feels like a much a much more profound sense of peace so it really is very important because you're laying the foundation 
for the actions to be as effective as as we want them really so in a way it's it's a little of a tricky one and it takes some practice and it takes some iterations to go through as well but when we have that sense of acceptance that internal battle within us it does start to and so somebody listening is working through this process, they have uh, understood their tiny T's, they've identified them, and then they have accepted them. Um, what does the action piece of this puzzle look like? What are people doing in this step to to make use, to embrace, I think is the word you use, these tiny T's to build that resilience? So it does depend on the presentation, on what someone is really struggling with. So I have tailored techniques for each of these common themes that I see, so for the high-function anxiety, for the low-grade depression, for the sleep difficulties, and that's where the tailoring part, so the person-centered and personalized part, is so important. But overall, in general, what we can all do to really strengthen our psychological immune system and thrive is, you know, things that we talk about so much of the time. So to, you know, look after ourselves, to to what I call eat stuff from the ground and move our body around to to really go back to basics. But the key thing is connection. We are group animals and we need the sense of connection, true connection. So that is one thing that we can action. And sometimes though, like during the pandemic, we couldn't really see people face to face much. So connecting with nature, connecting with animals, to feel that we are part of this world is an action across the board that we can all do. And to cultivate a sense of curiosity in life rather than criticism. So when we're curious about the world or about our thoughts or about our experience and taking that sort of more external look at it, it allows us to, you know, really explore and experience the world in a way that is not sort of painted and colored by by the tiny amazing dr meg arrow thank you so much for this i'm going to make sure that your book tiny traumas is linked in the show notes below for anyone to go and get a copy if they want to uh, in the meantime whilst they wait for their copy of the book to arrive where else can people go to learn more about the book and your work so my website is drmegarrow.com and um just all on the usual socials um you can find me to uh, dr amazing meg thanks so much A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.